Uh, if I can title today's sermon, I would like to title it Gather. And uh, our main scripture is going to be out of Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Funny joke time. Do you guys know how Moses would make his tea? Hebrews it. That's all you need to know about the book of Hebrews. So anyway, wow, tough, tough crowd. Just so you know, it only gets worse from here. So if, if that didn't do it for you, I, I'm sorry. Do what you normally do and take a nap during this time. I don't know, but it'll be okay. We're going we're gonna to get through this. I do like audience participation, so don't feel like, you know, you just got to sit there and listen to me blab on because no one wants to do that, not even myself. I don't want to stand up here and just blab on. So a little bit of audience participation will be appreciated, and uh, we're going to get through this together. Amen? So Gather. Back, back to the point of it before I turn a 20-minute thing into 40 minutes. Why do we gather together? Has anyone ever kind of sat there and wondered that? It seems like when you talk to most people, they don't like to be alone. You know, ever since the beginning of time, humans have always had just this, this deep dislike of being alone. You know, not almost like that, that fear of, of the dark. It's not really that I'm afraid of the dark. I'm just afraid of what could be in the dark, Right? Since the beginning of time, people would band together in camps, they would form hunting parties, and they would socially gather um, to tell stories about what was going on. You know, one of my favorite things uh, back when we used to go to Alive with the youth group was after the main concerts were over, we would gather together at our campsite. It was was a lot of fun. We kind of had like the campers in the tents were in a big circle and the fire was in the middle. Uh, but we would gather in these campsites, and I would usually bring my guitar, and we would just start singing worship songs, you know, with just our group at the time. It was Becca, Hannah, Trista, uh, Jared, Ethan. I don't know if you were there. You might have been a little bit too young at that time still. But it would just start with just a couple of us. And then before we know it, a couple groups from the surrounding campsites would come in. And then someone would bring a cajon, and they would start playing. And then we would have other just insanely skilled singers, they would come and they would start doing harmonies and whatnot. And before you know it, this little group of, I don't know, maybe seven or eight people, we were sitting there, you'd look around and like, there's like 25 people here. Where did you all come from? Don't you have your own campfire? Don't you have your own s'mores that you can be making? Stop taking all our stuff. But that's okay. You see, they have just this need to gather together, to want to be together. And I know what a couple people out here are thinking, because uh, there's always kind of that, that loner. You're sitting there thinking, like, I don't know about that. You know, hate, hate's a strong word, but I really, really, really don't like being around other people. You know, I, I maybe like being around my family, some of them, that I get along with. Everyone has that crazy uncle at Thanksgiving, right? But for, for the most part, I really don't want to be around people. And that's a natural thing to think, to, to think. You know, a lot of these people we disagree with. They don't think like us. Maybe they have different political views. Maybe they have different worldviews than you. And you just think a lot differently than them. But here's a little bit of a challenge for you if you're one of those people. If you don't hang around people just because you don't like the way that they think, maybe we should be focusing on hanging around with those people. Because hanging around with them, people that maybe have a different worldview, they kind of help you sharpen your own worldview. 
They help you see a bigger picture of what's going on. They help you get an idea of the grander plan. And as the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so does man sharpen man. We need people in our lives to challenge us. Even if it's just people that that make you feel bad. Now, I'm not telling you to stay in a toxic relationship, but if you hang around some people who maybe every once in a while you kind of sit there and you think, man, I just don't like hanging around with that person. I just don't like the way that they make me feel. Then when you are around people who do make you feel good, it's going to feel that much better. As Nicolas Cage said in one of my favorite movies ever, Gone in 60 Seconds, when he's talking about the times, all the times that he couldn't steal the 67 Ford Mustang, he says, without the misery of feet, of defeat, we could never fully appreciate the beauty of winning, right? So we need that full range of emotions. And by the way, those people that I'm describing, maybe the ones that you don't get along with, it's totally normal for those to be your family and your friends. It's okay. You don't have to disown them because of that. Moving on here, this this idea of gathering together, there's a deep, this is a big word, physiological, I don't know how many syllables that is, but it's a lot. There's this deep, deep physiological, a psychological need for humans to gather with other humans. And there's even a whole big science theory about this. They call it the social baseline theory. Yes, it's working. It's not working. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, it's not working. Uh, Robert, can you control the slides? And I really hope I can get a copy of my notes on here. Otherwise, it's going to be a really short sermon. Stand by. Downloading. Got it. Okay, you got the slides? Man, that really sucks. I was going to, like, draw on the screen and, like, do all these different demonstration things. Is it... Oh, it's coming back. Well, yeah, we're going to, can you just run the slides? All right. Anyway, back to the social baseline theory. Social baseline theory is this idea that the brain expects to have these uh, access to these relationships with other humans. These connections, uh, they do a lot of things in, in our mind, and there's a reason why we go after it. Having connections with people lowers the potential risks that one might face in any given situation. Think about if you were to go start a fight with somebody, right? If I were to go up to a group and start a fight, I could look at a group of 10 people and take a look at them, and I can sit there and think, I don't know how many of them it would take to whip up on me, but I know how many they have available to use, so I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to start that fight. There's safety in numbers, safety in big, large groups. Having numbers of people also allows to lower the amount of work that is required to accomplish a task. Everybody take a look around, in front of you, behind you, How many chairs do you think we have set up right now? I mean, I see like 
There's at least 10 just unused in the middle, like there usually is, because no one wants to sit in the middle. That's okay. I would say, what do we have? Is it safe to say we have at least 50 chairs set up? Think about this for a second. If one person were to set up all of those chairs, how many chairs would that one person have to take off the rack and put down? 50. This is that audience participation I was talking about earlier. Do we have any, any math majors out there? If we had two people who were here to help us set up chairs, how many chairs would each person have to put down? 25. I don't know about you, but putting down 25 chairs sounds a whole lot better than having to put down 50 chairs, right? Let's take this even further. If we had maybe 10 people here to set up chairs, how many people, how many chairs would that be? That'd be five. I think everybody can put down five chairs, right? Right? Yeah, can anyone here not put down five chairs? How many of us think that it would be enjoy, enjoyable for us to have to put down 50 chairs? Now, that's a, that's a shameless plug for help on the production team right there. If you got a pinky thumb, we got a place for you to come and help us on Sunday mornings. It's a great time, I promise you. Every once in a while, Pastor brings donuts, and it's great. Anyway, continuing on. In addition to this idea of safety and numbers and just having a pure number of people uh, available to help out, there are scientific studies that show that being in a group makes us healthier. If you have no support structure in your life, they have found that there's a higher level of, I'm going to butcher this, but it's cortisol, the stress hormone. Is that how you say it? Cortisol? Cortisol. Yeah, it's the stress hormone. It's the, the hormone that makes you feel all anxious and, and worm and squirmy inside. If, you're, if you don't have a support structure, you have more of that stuff in you, which leads to cardiovascular problems, cardiovascular problems, uh, which is the thump thump that makes your heart not work as good. Uh, people with fewer social ties, uh, they've seen, um, for some reason, to have higher ties to cancer and impaired immune systems. They just don't work as well. I guess that kind of makes sense, because what do you do when one of your kid's friends gets the chicken pox? You take your kid there, so your kid gets the chicken pox, right? Is that how it works now? I don't know. This is online, so child safety services might be calling me. But anyway, if we're around people, we have a better immune system. And oddly enough, a study done in 1970 showed that people with little social structure, just for some reason, tended to die earlier. Really, really sad uh, finding they found there. And when we look at all of these things that, you know, we're, we're put together, we know that God created us this way, right? And if all of those reasons that I just described, you being healthier, it being better to do, being easier to do things, um, you know, people... You live longer if you're with other people. If none of those things gives you reason enough to want to gather together with a group of people, consider this for a second. We should gather together simply because God said so. You see, God knows that we have this desire to be together because he created us that way. Surely after he created man, he had to create the first woman. Let's go and let's take a look at... um, at that story in Genesis. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field 
and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every little creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, brought her to the man, and then, uh, then the man said, At last this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And men, ladies, have been a pain in our side ever since, right? Yeah, but um, chink, I told you it gets worse from that start joke. <laughs> anyway, let's back up for a second. Um, go back, Robert, can you go back? I think it was like three verses ahead uh, behind this one. Nope, one more back. Anyway, I'll paraphrase. So God sees that Adam is in the garden all alone, and he's looking at him. He's probably going stir-crazy at this point because he ain't got nobody to talk to. And he says, this isn't healthy for this man. I have to find him a companion. So Macy Day parade style, God lines up all the creatures that he created, and they just kind of like walk him in front of him, and God says, man, take your pick of things that can be your companion, right? And they all go through, and Adam names every single one of the animals, really what a mature thing of Adam to do not to call animals some things, like I'd have called an elephant a big nose, a snake danger noodle, just some, some wild things like that. Very mature of Adam to give respectable names to these animals. And he goes through every single animal, and he's sitting there, and Adam's thinking, like, man, none of these were good enough to be my companion, and, and I think about that, you know, I think about the, um, you know, the relationship that we have with dogs, right? I love my dog, Bobo. You guys have heard me tell stories about Bobo all the time. He's probably the, the best, worst dog in the world. And I love him to death, but he could never replace my wife. Spending time with Bobo could never replace the conversations that I have in our small groups together. You know, I could sit here and I could try to talk to Bo about you know, deep theological intricacies and talk about Tozer all I wanted, and he's probably going to look at me the same way that I look at Pastor Jason when we read Tozer's book. Just completely confused. But God created another human companion for Adam to be with because he knew that only a human could be fit for another human to spend time with. And just like God wants us to gather with our friends and loved ones, we're also, gall- we're also called to gather as the church as well. We find this in Hebrews 10.24. Uh, the author of the letter of Hebrews says, if you can pull up Hebrews 10.24, uh, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised who for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
So the, the author of this letter to the Hebrews is giving us pretty clear instructions that we're supposed to meet together. I had uh, the, the privilege of listening to an Air Force chaplain. He was this older gentleman um, preach one time, and he was talking about how the church needs to gather. And he told the story, you know, back in the days of um, when they used to have to heat their houses with a fireplace. Everyone had a fireplace going. And back in those days, the, the pastor of this church had a couple who stopped. All of a sudden, they stopped coming to church on Sunday. And he thought, you know, the first Sunday, yeah, maybe it was just not feeling good. The second Sunday that they weren't feeling good, he thought, okay, maybe something's going on. And then the third Sunday came around and he said, all right, something's wrong. They're not coming to church anymore. So on this third Sunday, it was snowing really bad and it was really cold. So he trudges through the snow. He's got his snow boots on and he walks up to the couple's door that had stopped going to church and he knocks on the door. And the couple who lived there, they opened the door and said, pastor, what are you doing here? And the pastor didn't say a word to him. So the couple, they looked at him and said, well, you know, come on in. Come stand by the fire. Come get warm. So the pastor of this couple, he walks in, walks right next to the fireplace and sits down on a chair and just starts looking at the fire that was roaring. And he's looking, and you know how red hot the coals of a fire get, right? Just burning, just absolutely burning red hot. You could tell that it was, you know, a really hot fire. And he's sitting there, he's watching it, he's gazed on it, still not saying a word. And he gets up and he grabs a pair of the the tong things that you can use to move a log around. And he just grabs one coal out of that fire and he sets it down on the bricks in front of it. And he sits there and he stares at it. And at first it was still glowing red hot. But then as time goes on, It got dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until eventually there was no glow on it. You know, when he first pulled it out of the fire, he had to use those tongs to get it out because if he would have grabbed it with his hands, he would have burned himself. But when that ember turned black, when it was no longer glowing, he picks it up with his hand and he just looks at it. He looks at the couple and he puts it back in the fire and almost instantly that ember began to heat back up again and started glowing again. The pastor then stepped back and he looked at the couple and the couple said, message received. We'll see you at church next week. You see, we need each other to warm us up, to be the heat to keep us going. Just as iron sharpens iron, man sharpens man, we need each other to keep us sharp so that when we're out doing ministry, we can be a useful tool. No one likes having a dull knife. You want your knife to be sharp, so if you have to cut something, you're able to. If you have a dull knife, it's, it's pretty much worthless. In the Bible, the church, and I'm talking big, big C church, is referred to as the bride of Christ. You see, Christ loves the church so much that he calls it his bride. And if we love Jesus, we should be loving the things that he loves. And what is the church? Church is a gathering of his people, right? We should love gathering together. I'll give you an example of this loving things that somebody else's love. My wife, right, watches Grey's Anatomy. And before I was married, do you picture me sitting there watching 
Grey's Anatomy? Absolutely not. I didn't watch Grey's Anatomy at all. I was like, I don't care about any of this stuff. Can't, couldn't be bothered with it. After we got married, however, this was a show that my wife enjoyed watching. And guess what I do now every Saturday with her? We're sitting on the couch watching Grey's Anatomy. And not only am I watching Grey's Anatomy, I'm well aware of what's going on. I want to know exactly what's happening to Meredith. I want to know what's happening to McDreamy. Uh, what is going on with, uh, <laughs> call him Pretty Eyes Doctor, because <laughs> I don't know his name, Jackson. What's going on with Jackson? Where is he going? I am so into the show. And if she watches something without me, the whole entire time I'm asking questions. What is this? Who is this? What is this person doing? It's gone so far that I even watch, I even watch Station 19 with her, so I know what's going on and everything. How pathetic is that? But if I'm willing to do something that I love because my wife loves it, I should be doing, I should be willing to do something that Christ loves because Christ loves it, right? Church isn't supposed to be some burdensome thing that we come here. Like, oh, I got to wake up early on Sunday. I got to get my hair did. I got to put real pants on. I can't just wear my yoga pants to church today. I have to, you know, make sure my hair looks good. I have to comb my beard in the morning. But that's not the way that church is supposed to be. Church is supposed to be something that we look forward to doing. Church is supposed to be not burdensome. It's supposed to be a blessing. And I would say that if church is a burden for you, we're probably doing church wrong, right? There's so many reasons that we should be gathering as a church. One of them is worshiping Jesus. That's one of the most powerful things that you can do. It says in Matthew 18.20, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am, among the, I am among them too. So the last time I was up here, I was talking about how we are a physical crossroads between the spiritual and the physical, Right? So if we're carrying the Holy Spirit with us, everything we do, we're carrying Jesus with us every, everywhere we go through his Holy Spirit. When we get together, Matthew 18 says, Jesus is there with us as well. So we get a double dose of Jesus when we gather together. We have that Holy Spirit that's inside of us, but we also get his presence here with us. We grow spiritually when we gather together. You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is gold, when you dig it up out of the ground, doesn't appear shiny and pure. There's a process that you have to go through to take something from just, uh, you know, pure gold that you find in the river to gold that you can use in jewelry. You have to heat it up really, really hot to the point where it melts, and then the jeweler will scoop the impurities out of it, leaving just the pure gold left inside. You see, when we meet together, that is the energy that we need to get us hot enough so that we can scoop the impurities out of our life. We need each other's prayers, the encouragement, and the accountability. That's the heat that we use to purify ourselves. And yeah, I said the A word, accountability. It's not a word that a lot of people like to hear right now. It's never... It's never my fault, right? It's my ancestor's fault, my, my no-good, pig-stealing, great-great-great-grandfather. It's his fault that I'm cursed. 
that's not true. It's not true at all. You have complete control over your life. And I think a lot of times we just need to accept personal responsibility of what's going on. We can't let the excuses of the world stand in the way of what God is calling us to do. You know, we have several small group programs here. We have a Bible study in the morning that people can go to. Uh, during the, um, we're on a summer break right now, but we have home groups in the evening that we can go to. We have, and what these small, what these small groups do is they serve as that iron that we can sharpen ourselves against. You know, we can bounce, we can talk through things. We had great discussions in our last home group study that honestly are what were needed to take us from being spiritual babies, drinking spiritual milk, to being able to eat some big boy steaks, right? We shouldn't, it's not healthy for an adult to only be drinking milk the whole time. They need some protein. They need some... Ah, some meat in their diet, right? And that's what gathering together can allow us to do. We have to make it a priority to gather, though. There will always be an excuse why we can't do something, but we need to focus on being able to do it. So I want to talk for a second about what we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship. Because God is not only concerned that we gather, but he's concerned about what we're doing when we gather too. Now, I would be extremely remiss if I didn't mention that this past year has been completely extraordinary and unprecedented. Not in a hundred years have we ran into a situation like COVID where we physically cannot gather. But the good news is, knock on wood, appears that we're on the waning side of this and we can kind of start to get back to normal. Uh, For a long time, churches have not been able to gather, or they've had to change how they gather. Uh, They've had to have spaced out services. We did this here, where everyone was, you know, so far apart that, you know, you couldn't really see each other or talk to each other. There were some places that banned singing in church. Only one person was allowed to sing. Um, And there's other places that churches had to go 100% online, and they couldn't even meet in person to do anything. The pandemic has really opened my eyes to how many evangelicals don't understand what church is meant to be. We've assumed what church is, but we're way off of the mark on it. A lot of people think of the church as a physical building where you come, you sing a couple songs, Heath plays that guitar, you uh, listen to some dude blab on a little bit about stuff you don't really care about. But that's not what church is supposed to be. We've taken church for granted throughout the years in comparison to what the church is called to be biblically. You see, there's not enough theological reflection on what the church is supposed to be. And we're going to get into a little bit of this in a second. God has called us to gather as an assembled congregation. We're called to assemble together to do one another good, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are called to be God's assembled representatives. Just like the Avengers, on their own, their Iron Man, their Hulk, their Captain America, their um, Spider-Man. But when they're together, they're the Avengers, right? And when they're together, they can do things that physically they wouldn't be able to do if they were separate. 
in the Bible, there are some pretty clear instructions on how we are to act when we're gathering. There's three points that we're going to touch on here. The first being worship should be orderly. That the second, that we should be building each other up in his word. And the third, we need to be worshiping wisely. If you have your uh, Bibles, flip to Corinthians 14.26 real quick. Corinthians 14.26 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two, at most three, in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh in on what is said. But if, there, uh, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Can you go back to verse 27, please? What we're saying here is everybody, uh, go back one more for me, 26. Everybody has their own place in the church here. There's people who have a hymn. There's people who have a lesson. There's people who have a revelation. There's people who will speak in tongues. And that is all fine that everybody has their own thing to do, but it has to be orderly. If everyone were to just get up and start doing their own thing at the same time, you'd have no idea where to look. You'd have no idea what was going on. Everybody has a place in the service, but it needs to be in order. The second thing that we should be doing when we meet together is building each other up in his word. If you can flip over to Colossians 3, uh, verse 15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing and uh, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving him thanks to God the Father through him. You see, there should be no room for hate in the church. We should be constantly building each other up in his word. You can disagree with each other, that's how we sharpen each other. We have conversations. We have de- uh, debates back and forth. But never should anything be said to a brother and sister in Christ out of hate. Everything should be done out of love. Because you see, you can spend a lifetime trying to build somebody up to the point where they trust you and develop a relationship with them to where you can lead them and you can guide them through their spiritual walk. But all of that can be torn down so quickly in just a blink of an eye with the person saying it, not even realizing what's happened. So we have to be extremely careful how we criticize each other. We have to be extremely careful about when we're talking to each other to make sure that we're being encouraged. And on the flip side of that, if you're somebody who has been offended by somebody in the church and that person has reached out and apologized to you, don't hold a uh, judge, don't hold a grudge on that matter. That person wasn't mature enough to recognize that a mistake was made and go to you to apologize. We should respect that and continue on with our lives. After all, that is the biblical thing to do, right? 
Since we're forgiven, we should forgive each other. The third thing that we should be doing when we gather together is worship wisely. And I know you're sitting here thinking, like, how do you worship wisely? That's kind of an odd thing to say. Uh, Is there a a special song that we need to sing? Uh, Somewhere in the Bible it says something about playing a flute. Do I need to learn how to play the flute? I mean, my kid has a recorder, but that's not quite the same thing. Is there a, a special chord? Can I learn that chord that David played that pleased the Lord so much? None of that is what worshiping wisely is about. I'm glad one person laughed at that. Leave it, leave it to my wife to laugh at my jokes. I love it. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord is... I'm sorry, understand what the will of the Lord is. It's hard to read that screen back there. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. That sounds a lot like what we read in Corinthians 3.15, right? Very similar. Go back a slide for me, Robert. This scripture here settles, in my opinion, an age-old argument that has quite honestly split a lot of churches, and that is, what should we sing? Are we allowed to sing contemporary music with awesome guitars and people banging them drums and, and the bass guitar and the piano? and edgy vocals, are we allowed to sing that? Or do we need an organ playing? Do we need hymnals for everybody? Do we need a choir? I think this verse makes it pretty clear on what we should be doing. We should be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs. That is a huge variety of things to pick on that encompasses everything. You know, that's why here at Passion, we don't have a particular music style that we adhere to, as long as it's biblical. That's, that's like the number one rule. Lyrics have to be biblical. It has to be theologically good. But we'll sing a hymn. We'll sing spiritual songs and anything in between. And it'll be okay. As long as we're singing from the heart to the Lord and always giving thanks to him. Uh, John the Revelator gives a pretty good example of this. In uh, Revelations 15, um, he's given a vision that he sees after the final battle between um, heaven and hell. And he talks about how everything looks like glass. There's a sea of glass that he sees. And uh, in the one corner on the victorious side, there's a whole bunch of people who are playing harps that the Lord has given him, just singing his praises. What a glorious sound that might be. I'll tell you, I think the closest thing that I've ever came to a, playing a guitar that the Lord had given me, uh, I was down in Nashville, Tennessee with my wife, and uh, you know, Nashville, Tennessee is the home of that good old country music. Uh, we stopped at this place called Carter's Vintage Guitars, and I was just walking around, and I picked up, uh, there was a Gibson J45 hanging on the wall, and I sat there, and I started playing Greater You, Lord. You give life, you will love 
bring light to the darkness. I'm sitting here playing that song, and that guitar sounded so amazing. I instantly fell in love with it, and I'm sitting here, and I'm playing it, and I'm like, you know what? I got to take this thing home. I got a little bit of change in my savings account. It'll be okay. I'll figure it out. So I reached up, and I looked at the price tag on that guitar. Does anyone want to take a guess how much that guitar cost? cost more than the the car that we drove down there cost. I immediately put it back on the hook and we walked out. But that beauty, that a $22,000 guitar, that sound that makes, can't be anything compared to a guitar given to you by the Lord. Or maybe it is because the only way that I'm ever going to get that guitar is if God gives it to me. But that's just a glimpse of what our worship should be. It should be beautiful. God has a soft spot for beautiful things. God is the creator of all things. Uh, When the tabernacle was constructed, only the most talented craftsmen could work on the tabernacle. No, not not any mason could come in and lay, lay brick in the tabernacle. It had to be the most skillful one. Not any hole digger could come in and dig a hole for the tabernacle. It had to be the most skilled one. But there are all kinds of skilled people in this world. There's skilled painters. There's sculptors. There's people who are skilled caretakers. There's people who are skilled with numbers. People who can do things and excel that just blow your mind. There's skilled mothers. There's skilled fathers. You know, the more that I sit here and I wrap my head about being a dad, the more I realize there's nothing more important in this world than taking a tiny human being and raising it up to be a functioning human being. Those skills that we have, everything that we're doing, we should be doing for the Lord. We should be doing it beautifully, and we need to do our best to make it more beautiful. I think of the the parable of the bags of gold in Matthew 25, when the, I'm I'm running really long, so I'm trying to finish up here. Um, When the master's leaving, he gives each of his servants a bag of gold. He gives one five bags of gold another servant two bags of gold, and the last servant one bag of gold, and says, go and multiply this. Go and and make this more. And the first two, the one with the five bags of gold and the one with the two bags of gold, they go out and they invest it, and they double their return. And the master comes back and he says, I'm pleased with this. This is good. You doubled what you got. And then the last one, the last man that only got one bag of gold, he went and he buried it somewhere, and he brings it back to the master, and he didn't squander it. He didn't waste any of it he gives exactly one bag of gold back to the master. And the master looks at him and says, you wicked, lazy servant. You see, when God gives us our skills and our talents, one, we shouldn't squander them. Could you imagine if that servant was like, hey, I lost all your gold. I spent it on, I don't know, sandals. That would have been bad. But the master wasn't pleased with the fact that he didn't squander it. He wasn't pleased with the fact that he didn't multiply it. And we should be multiplying the skills that God gives us constantly. We should constantly be trying to better ourselves to make ourselves better. We shouldn't be maintaining, we should be multiplying. And we all have a gift to use during our gatherings. And we all ought to be using it. I'm talking about our voices, our singing. Did you know that there are over 400 references to singing in the Bible? Over 400 of them. I think it's like, I heard 422 somewhere. 
but I left it at just over 400 because I knew that was safe. And in the Bible, there's over 50 direct commands for us to sing. Singing is a ministry that each member of the church should be performing for the whole church. When you attend a worship service, it shouldn't be like we're at a concert. You know, when, when you join a church, what you're really doing is you're joining a choir, getting together to sing out. When we're here together, we're not just concert goers. We're not just watching the worship to be entertained. We're producers. We're supposed to be producing the sound with the people leading worship. God knows that we need singing in our lives, even bad singing. It's okay. There's spiritual healing that comes uh, when we sing. When we sing good theological songs, it draws us closer to to God and just kind of like sets that worship mood. You know, the past couple of days, my wife and I, we were coming up to help them get the sound stuff ready for church. And, um, you know, before the the sound system was ready, there was just, uh, Carter was up here playing his guitar and everyone was singing. And guys, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Because here's this group of kids who are getting ready to serve their entire summer to serve other kids just giving their all to God, just worshiping just so beautifully. And like I said, the sound system wasn't on. It didn't vocally, like musically, like your ears, it didn't sound as good as it could sound. But just that atmosphere was so incredible. When we sing together, we're encouraging each other. Every single one of those kids in that building, they were building themselves up to a point where they're going to have to deal with kids all day long. (laughs) Not their kids, some other people's kids, all day long, all they're going to be doing. And yet, through their singing, they were able to encourage each other up to that. Uh, There's studies that show that the vibrations of our voice, not just in our vocal box, but the vibrations in the air can promote healing. You know, have you ever noticed that if you, if you have a cat and you're hurting and your cat will sit on you and just kind of purr, that purr, 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 purr? It's thought that the, um, the frequencies, the vibrations in the air that that purring makes actually promotes healing in the body. And that's why cats do it. That's one theory. In addition to, to the healing that happens, setting words to a melody helps us remember them. Somebody recite, can someone say the ABCs right now, out loud? Okay, usually when you ask someone to do that who's not Steve, they sing it, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? How many people, when you say the alphabet in your head, you have to sing it in your head? Be, be honest, I do it. I sit there at work and I file and I'm thinking A, B, C, D, going through everyone's last names. It's just something that we do because it helped us remember it. How many of you guys can recite theology behind salvation? Can anyone do that? Let me give you a hint right now. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Right? Everyone know that song? You just recited Theology of Salvation right there. And we're able to do that because we remember it. You are probably not going to remember five minutes worth of what I talked to you about today. 
but you're going to go home, you're going to listen to those songs that Heath sang, and they're going to get stuck in your head. And you know what? That's okay, because they were good, theologically sound songs. There's, when we worship and when we gather together, there's so much more than what meets the eye. And if Heath, if you can come up, we're going to start wrapping up. Somebody out there just let off a big sigh of relief and said, finally. That was my wife. <laughs> you see, when we meet here on Sunday, we don't just meet here willy-nilly for no good reason. I believe that we have a divine appointment to be here. Everybody who is here today is here today for a purpose. When we gather here together, we have a mission. We have a mission to build each other up in God's word. We have a mission to worship God wisely. It's up to us to discern what our mission here is. As Heath begins to to play this song, I want to ask you, if you've been brought here today, it's for a reason. I want to ask if anyone is hurting here today. Physically, mentally, emotionally, if you have a need here today, you are here for it to be met. I want to ask you today, is anyone here like that coal that the preacher grabbed out of the fire. It was plucked from the fire, put on the ledge, and is starting to burn out. There's good news. That coal, you can be reignited here tonight. And I, I want to I do something here that is going to make a lot of people shy away. But if you're one of those people who needs prayer, and you would be comfortable with a member of the congregation coming over and praying for you, I would ask you to take your right hand and place it over your heart. If you're one of those people here who maybe you're not comfortable with someone coming and and laying a hand on you and praying with you, but you would still like prayer, I would ask that you take your left hand and just place it over your heart because we still want to be able to pray with you. And as Heath just begins to to play the songs, I just ask that you just take a moment of self-reflection and ask God, what is my purpose here? Ask God, is there any areas in my life that just like the jeweler making the ring that need to be plucked out? And just allow him just to warm you up enough to be able to do that.
Yes, Heavenly Father God. Keep playing that chorus. God, we just love you so much. God, I pray that we would just start taking our time together here seriously. And we would just begin just to just earn after you deeper, God. Lord, there's so many of us who have been separated from the fire that just keeps us hot for you, God. I pray that you would just begin to rekindle that spark in our souls, God, that spark in our spirits, just to begin to just, oh, just go after you, God. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you made for us on that cross. 